0: This Student Ministry 127 podcast is a sermon preached at the 2011 West Coast Baptist Youth Conference by Brother Kerry Schmidt. Brother Schmidt has served as an assistant pastor at Lancaster Baptist Church for over 20 years, where he oversees the student and music ministries. For more sermon resources, please visit preaching.lancasterbaptist.org. Well, some of you wonder why I'm bald, uh, since you were here last, if you've come to a youth conference about um, six or seven months ago uh, I went in for a physical and I felt I'd been feeling some swollen lymph nodes and under my armpit and one on my collarbone and I asked the doctor to check them out and he, he felt them and he said yep they're swollen and uh, he said you probably ought to get a cat scan and get that looked at a cat scan is where you lay on that table and go into that tunnel and that thing scans you and takes pictures of you and So I went in the next Monday for a CAT scan and the um, phone rang about 9 o'clock that night after my CAT scan and my wife answered the phone and she came into the room with this alarmed look on her face. She said, Carrie, I was sitting there with my kids, she said, it's the doctor. Well, the doctor doesn't call you at 9 o'clock at night with good news, you know, hey, I just want you to know you're feeling good, you know, that doesn't happen. So I grabbed the phone and I ran up to my bedroom and shut the door and, prepared to hear something real bad. And the doctor at that point said that I had some masses in my, first he said in my lungs, which that that scared me. And then he, I said, well, what do you mean in my lungs? Can you explain that? And he said, no, 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 not in your lungs. I mean in between your lungs. And, and uh, so that was a little less scary, but still kind of scary. And so we talked, he didn't really want to talk. He was a Russian doctor. He didn't really want to give me a diagnosis. He didn't know what the lumps were. He wasn't he was just reading the report that the, that the uh, person who ran the machine had written, and he said, you really need, we're going to refer you to something called oncology, hematology. Oncology is a cancer doctor, and hematology is a blood doctor, and usually they're, they go together. And so <clears throat> about a week later, and actually, actually two days later, I was sitting in my doctor's office, a man that actually I'd helped lead to the Lord of, a number of years ago, and he was, he's my doctor. And uh, we sat down with him, my wife and I, on a Wednesday night. He looked up our cat scan and sent me in for an x-ray and sat me down. And I'm, I'm thinking I've got some kind of allergy or my wife's chicken recipe is bad for me or something like that. You know, I'm going to have to change soaps or something. And I had gone to the allergist. I would tried to figure out what was wrong with me in all kinds of different areas. And this man finally sat down and he, uh, he said, this doesn't look real good. And I said, well, what is, what's the worst case and best case? What's, what could this be? And he said, well... Worst case, Carrie," he said, worst case, you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and that's a cancer. And he said, that's about 30% survivable with treatments and chemotherapy and things like that. And I said, okay, that's worst case, you know. I kind of figured worst case would be cancer. And I'm still waiting for best case, you know, best case, your wife needs to change laundry detergents and stop making her chicken recipe. And he said best case would be, and he stopped for a minute, and kind of looked out his window and he said, best case would be if this were Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I just kind of froze there for a minute and I'm, I'm thinking, wait a minute, worst case lymphoma, best case lymphoma, that doesn't sound too good either way. And I looked at him, I said, so you really believe that I have cancer? And he said, I am 90, 90 95% sure that you have cancer. He said, "Now." If this is Hodgkin's lymphoma, this is really treatable and survivable and curable in most cases. He said that's 95% of the people that get Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, are cured of it. And I thought I heard him say that Hodgkin's was more common than non-Hodgkin's, but he actually said that non-Hodgkin's was more common, and my wife heard that. So we left the doctor's office, and I left thinking I have a 95% chance of surviving. My wife left thinking... My husband has a 30% chance of surviving, although I didn't know what I had. And we got in the, we, we left the doctor's office, and my wife buried her head in my chest. I put my arm around her, and she started to cry, and we started to walk out of that facility. We got in the car. It was a Wednesday night. Church had already started. We drove over to a park not far from here. We got out. And we started walking and talking. And uh, there's one thing that came to my mind. Oh, a lot of things began racing through my mind, to be honest with you. Early death uh, – Starting a plan for you know how would I how would I provide for my family and I got to call my insurance agent and I got to talk to pastor and got to call my family and my parents and Dana's parents and we got to we got to you know start making plans and I really at that park I remember looking at my wife and we stopped at one minute and I said to Dana I said I don't know what God has in store for this but if He's going to take me early I'm I want I want Him to use me in my death just like I'd want Him to use me in my life. I said to to my wife, when I surrendered my life to the Lord, I was in fourth grade, I said when I surrendered my life to the Lord at junior camp in fourth grade, I meant it. And if this is the race he has for me to run, then this is the race I'm going to run, and I'm going to run it to the best of my ability. And there was one thing that was kind of overriding in my heart and mind as I took that walk with my wife and as my emotions began to try to wrestle with this concept of cancer and trying to wrap your brain around that was just, was really an undescribable experience. But I kept coming back to something that has been a part of my life since I was saved and it's been the most important priority in my life since I trusted Christ as my Savior and that is my relationship with my Savior, with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I I wasn't taking that walk thinking about Religion, I wasn't thinking about all the stuff I was supposed to do for God or all the rules I was supposed to keep. I was taking that walk thanking God that I know him and that I love him and that he loves me and that he is my closest friend and life companion and that I don't have to walk through any storm or any trial or any tragedy or any part of life alone. I was thankful that I know God. Now, a little bit of a rabbit trail to give you a little bit of a synopsis of what's happened in the last six or six and a half months. The, the following month after that doctor's appointment just began to unfold incredibly. They had a whole bunch of tests I had to take. They had scans and blood work and lungs and heart and, and all kinds of ridiculous things. They put me in a box made me breathe like an ape. I mean, just crazy, goofy stuff. Stuff you guys would laugh at if we had video of it. I mean, really, really funny stuff. And uh, the, the, the worst test was the bone marrow biopsy. That was real interesting. That's where they drill into your hip with a piece of, uh, oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? Um, it's, it's this needle that's hollow, and they twist it into your hip, and then they pull out a chunk of your bone and pull out some of your bone marrow. And uh, the most pleasant part of that, I was, you know, laying there on a table with doctors and nurses all around, half of my, you know, whatever exposed. <laughs> I'm laying there, you know. My wife's rubbing my leg, like, you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay, and I'm just, you know, gritting my teeth. The doctors, the doctor and the nurse, when he, when he was done with, you know, with the needle, he, it, everybody was real quiet, and, he, and I didn't realize what was happening, and so I'm trying to make conversation, i laying there, you know, and I said, "While we have a quiet moment together, I'd like to invite you all to visit my church. <laughs> they didn't know what to think about that. What I didn't know is they were looking at the needle. I bent the needle. My bones bent the needle. I told the doctor I should have told him that I was made out of steel. He he literally looked at me and said, "I've never had a patient's bones bend the needle like this. You have the hardest bones of any patient uh, that I've ever drilled into." I said, "Well, you should have tried my head. It's even harder." Well, a week or so after all that, I got the diagnosis. And, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the doctors to call me from these biopsies and stuff because it's either, it's it's definitely cancer. It's either it's either, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and I better prepare to die or it's Hodgkin's lymphoma and I should prepare to live. And I'm waiting for this phone call. Friday, uh, Friday, the day I was expecting it, the guy wouldn't call me. He wouldn't call, wouldn't call. I kept calling Kaiser, kept calling Kaiser. Do I get to live? Do I get to live? You know, no one's answering me. No one's calling me back. Nurses won't talk to me. Finally, there's a lady that As a doctor, she's a member of our church and a friend of ours. And she had told me, if you ever need anything, call my cell phone. And she said, I can access your medical records. And her name is Dr. Param. So I called her, finally, about quarter to five. Dr. Param, do I get to live? You know, I said, can you look up my medical, can you tell me if my biopsy's back? And she looked it up and she said, Brother Schmidt, you have classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now, she was real sad on the other side of the phone. She said, I'm sorry to have to tell you this. I'm like... Yes, it's Hodgkins. I felt so ex- excited that most likely you know, Hodgkins—you can die from Hodgkins too—but most likely, I was excited that probably that this would be curable and God would let me live a little longer. And then uh, we began treatment. Treatment began in mid-October, and I'm in the middle of treatment right now. I've got—I've got, I've got uh, a couple more months of it. Chemo every two weeks, and I had chemo on Monday. So if I say something today doesn't make sense, it's because my brain's kind of fried. Um, But mainly what I want you to know is that my cancer's going away, it's decreasing, the scans are are really good, and God's answering prayer. I know a lot of you have been praying for me, and a lot of your parents or your pastors have written me and told me that you're praying for me. But God has really been teaching me a lot during this trial, other than the fact uh, that I don't need his hair as bad as I thought I did. I opened my hair drawer the other day. I have a hair dryer, I have brushes and combs hair gel, hairspray. I just opened it, waved, (laughs) closed it back up. Missed you guys, you know, that kind of thing. But the Lord's been working in my life, and he's been drawing me closer to him in a lot of ways that I wouldn't trade, I wouldn't go back, and I wouldn't redo it. And uh, I wanted to share something that I received a few, well, probably a couple months ago. From a young lady, a letter that I received. You may have read this. I posted it online, and some of you may have shared this with a friend or two. But uh, this this speaks really, really powerfully to you and to me and to where our lives are. A lot of times, she says, "Dear Pastor Schmidt, a few years ago, I read your books, Hookline and Sinker, Discover Your Destiny, and Life Quest. I found them to be extremely encouraging and instructive. They showed me that you have a heart for young people and understand us." I'm writing to ask you to consider writing a book to our parents. Let me explain. Listen to what she says. I am a junior at a well-known Christian college. I grew up in a highly respected, fundamental independent Baptist church. I went to excellent, excellent Christian schools. My father has been a Christian worker since before I was born one would think that my testimony would go something like this. I was saved when I was about five, dedicated my life to God, and have been growing a lot and serving Him, and now I'm studying to serve Him full time. But that isn't my story. Actually, though I did make a profession of faith when I was very young, I didn't get saved until I was 17. Since I was 12 and now into college, I have struggled with serious issues. I found out that when I went to college, I'm not the only good kid who has struggled with or still struggles with serious stuff. We struggle with issues like eating disorders, depression, suicide, cutting ourselves, pornography, gender identity, homosexuality, drugs, drinking, immorality, and the list could go on. We listen to wild music, we idolize pop culture's heroes, we watch dirty sitcoms, we have no discrimination in our entertainment, our dress, or any aspect of our lifestyle. Obviously I'm generalizing our problems, you would not find every Christian young people has these problems, or every Christian young person from a conservative background with all of these issues. And praise God, some of us do not struggle with any of these issues. My point is that the problems that are supposed to belong to the bad kids belong to us too. Unfortunately, our parents and youth workers don't know that we struggle with these things and they don't know what to do with us when they find out. Quite frankly, I believe if you grab the average Christian school teacher, Or youth worker, and ask them, What would you do if you found out that one of the kids you work with was a homosexual? They wouldn't know what to say. My point is not simply that they don't know what we struggle with or how to deal with it. I think there's a pretty simple reason why good kids struggle with such serious stuff. And that there is a solution. And at the risk of being blunt, I'm going to be blunt. Our parents didn't spend time teaching us to love God. Our parents put us in Sunday school since K-4. They took us to church every time the doors were open. They sent us to youth activities. They made sure we went to good Christian schools and colleges. They had us sing in the choir and help in the nursery. They taught us to be ushers and go soul winning. We did teen devotionals and prayed over every meal. We did everything right, and they made sure that we did, but they forgot about our hearts. They forgot that the Bible didn't command the church to teach children about God, when actually it did, by the way, and his ways, but that responsibility was laid at the feet of our fathers, and it is, the church and the parents. Unfortunately, our fathers don't have time for us. They put us where we are surrounded by the Bible, but they don't take time to show us that God was important enough to them to tell us personally about Him. So to us, Christianity has become a religion of externals. Do all the right stuff and you're a good Christian. So some of us walk away from church. Some of us stay in church and fill pew. Many of us struggle with stuff that our parents have no idea about because they hardly know us. I think these problems stem from, first, our detachment from our parents, and second, our misunderstanding about the essence of Christianity. It is a relationship, not a list of rules. I worry that many young people like me are not even saved because of their misunderstanding of Christianity. I know this has not been a well-articulated letter, but it comes from my heart. If you're able to help us and our families, we would be grateful. I realize probably there's no way to fix the fact that kids my age are detached from our parents or to straighten out the crazy stuff that we struggle with. The alienation is fixed. The scars are permanent. I know our situation is not hopeless. God is at work in my life and my generation among those of us who have struggled and are struggling. But maybe our younger siblings can have some help that we never had. I guess I've run out of things to say, and I must say I'm a little hesitant to share my name with you because that attaches me with my parents, who are, by the way, good people. I do want you to be able to contact me, and she gives me her information. You know what? I called that lady. I read that letter, and it just struck me. I called her and we talked. I said, do you regret growing up in a Christian home? She said, oh, no. I said, do you regret all the things you did, serving in the nursery and the choir and teaching in Sunday school and living a godly life? She said, no, no, I don't regret, regret any of that. I said, do you, are you bitter at your parents? She said, a little. And I said, what's the bitterness about? She said, really, just because they, they They didn't have time for me. They were always too busy. I said, do you believe what they believe? Do you embrace their faith? Do you embrace the faith of the Bible and the Lord? And she said, yes, I do. I said, what about your parents' rules? What about the rules you talked about in the letter that you grew up keeping? She said, I even agree with most of those. She said, I just know now that I'm 19, 20, 21, I just know that there was something really missing in my life that led to a lot of struggles and I know a lot of my friends are struggling and my younger siblings are struggling and I'm burdened because I think we miss the heart. You guys have heard a lot of preaching the last few days and you've heard a lot of preaching in your life and you're going to hear a lot more and you're going to hear preaching about what to do and how to live and that's great preaching because the Bible is a book filled with instruction on how to live. You heard Brother Skelly last night, and he preached about repentance and, and making your heart right with God and getting rid of sin. And God convicted many of us. Many of us came down to this altar, and we, we confessed our sin, and we, and we laid it before God. We forsook something. We walked back to our seat saying, I'm going to work harder at this. I'm going to have victory over this. I'm not going to look at that anymore. I'm not going to hang out with those. I'm not going to watch that. And in some Capacity, you decided to live differently because of what you heard preached. But I want to say something, teenagers, very, very important today. There's an element that makes the Christian life work. There's an element that makes the Christian life make sense. That if you don't have that element, nothing else about the Christian life makes sense, and nothing else about the Christian life is even possible. And no matter how many decisions you made or make during this conference, every single one of them will fail. And you will eventually give up, walk away, quit, and turn your back on God if you don't get this one element. The title of this message, Your Best Neglected Friend, I want you to write a couple things down in your outline. And I want to teach you something about the heart of God. First of all, number one, Jesus longs for a close relationship with you. Jesus longs for a close relationship with you. In John 15, 13, he said, or 14, ye are my friends. In verse 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. James 2, 23. Abraham was called the friend of God. I want you to stop and think about this, teenager, college student. Has it occurred to you lately that God looks at you, and when he thinks of you, which is all the time, and when you have his attention, which is all the time, he knows everything there is to know about you. He knows you more intimately than you know yourself. There's nothing hidden from him, but he looks on you, And he calls you his friend. And the story of the Bible, the story of time and the ages, the story of Genesis to Revelation is the story of a great, loving, awesome, gracious, wonderful, heavenly father who created you so that he could know you and so that you could know him. And the great longing and pursuit of God with his relationship with mankind is to have a closeness for mankind to choose him, to love him, and for him to love mankind, and for this relationship to be one of real relational intimacy. Jesus longs for a close relationship, a close friendship with you. I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. You ever see somebody or meet somebody, you say, I'd like to meet that person, I'd like to get to know that person? How many of you, in all honesty, how many of you would say, Brother Schmidt, I have a best friend? Raise your hand if you have a best friend. That's a cool thing. Your best friend, you feel like that person accepts you. That person understands you. That person is on your side. That person knows what you've gone through, knows what you're going through. That's the person you talk to. That's the person you bear your heart to. That's the person, if you need encouragement, you can count on them. If if you're down, they're going to write you a note. They're going to call you and see how you're doing. Your best friend is somebody that you rely on. You want to be close to that person. And can I help you understand, Jesus feels about you the way you feel about your best friend. He's not angry at you. He doesn't reject you. He's not looking for a chance to beat you up or to judge you. In fact, he went to the cross and he said, I will take all of your sin, all of your wrongdoing, everything that's wrong with your life, I will take it upon myself and I will become that sin. I will bear the wrath. I will bear the judgment. I will bear all the punishment So there's nothing left for you to bear and there's nothing left between us so that we can have a relationship. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty astounding. Jesus knows you better than anybody else could possibly know you. God never says, I really wish you hadn't told me that about yourself. There's nothing you could say to God that would surprise him about you. In fact, if there's a mistake we make, we try to hide. We come to God in prayer and we put on a show. You're angry at your parents. You're bitter at your principal. You're ticked off at a teacher. You're frustrated at a friend, and then you get down in your bed at night. Dear Jesus, thank you for such a good day. <laughs> and the Lord's going really? <laughs> come on, you think I'm falling for this? Your life's a mess. Why don't we talk about it? I already know. You know you'd be better off to say, God, I had a rough day today. I fought with my parents. I'm angry at my friends. I was disrespectful to my teacher. I don't even deserve to talk to you right now. God already knows it all, guys. You can't fool him. You can't fake him out. There's nothing about you that he doesn't know. He could make you do everything, but he won't make you love him. He desires... For you to choose him in a way that's not just your duty it's not just religion but it's a true relationship and so often we get focused on the religion we get focused on the structure and you know some of you go to christian school or in and, and let me let me let me rabbit trail for a minute guys every environment your home mcdonald's Your school, your church, your youth group, youth conference, every environment has to have structure, order, rules, if you will. Every relationship has some guidelines. I love my wife, and because I love her, there are some things I will do and won't do. Because I love my wife, I won't kiss another woman. How many of you say that's a pretty good rule to live by if you love your wife? But my relationship with my wife is not about the rules, it's about the relationship. And so often, in our relationship with the Lord, we get off track. We forget that He's a person and he, that He wants to relate to us and He wants us to know Him. And, and, and we get focused on what we're supposed to do and trying to do and do and do and keep all the rules and keep all the rules and keep all the rules. And we lose, we lose sight of the fact that it's not about the rules, it's about the relationship. God wants to be close to us. Number two, write this down. And this is simple. This is, frankly, not a very good message, but it's a really good truth. Number two, you long for a close relationship with Jesus. Not only did God create you to know you, not only did God create you to call you his friend, Not only did God go to the cross to redeem you to himself so you could be brought back to him and close to him, but he created in you a longing for himself. Psalm 1611 says, thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. How many of you can say, Brother Schmidt, I would really like to be happy? Can you raise your hand? Really, you really want to be happy. Raise your hand if you want to be happy. Put your hand down. I bet you would probably think, man, what a bummer to get diagnosed with cancer. That must really stink. That must really make you sad. Brother Schmidt, that must really have robbed your joy and robbed your happiness, and you probably never laughed. You probably never have any fun now that you've got cancer, you're on chemo and treatments and life must be really, really miserable. And can I tell you something? That that statement couldn't be farther from the truth. I have had more laughter and more joy. I've had as much joy in the last six months of my life as I have any time in my life prior. My life is no less happy, no less fulfilling, no less joyful than it's ever been. Why would that be? Because joy, happiness, is not about your health or what's right in your life or what's good in your life or your possessions or if you got what you wanted for your birthday. Can I tell you where joy comes from? Joy comes from you having a relationship that's personal with God, with Jesus Christ. In thy presence is fullness of joy. You know what I'm talking about because you experience it with your friends. You guys have had a lot of fun this week. You're going to go home and you're going to talk, talk for weeks about all the fun you had with your friends at Six Flags. What if I had just put you on a bus by yourself and sent you to Six Flags? Just one person at a time. You ever, what, what's, the, what's your first reaction when somebody tells you, when you hear something funny, you see something funny on the video and you want to laugh? What do you do when you laugh? You look at your friend, right? Am I right? You look at your friend. What do you do at Six Flags? You congregate with your best friends. Let's go together. Let's ride this ride together. Let's go here together. You tell jokes. You're sharing in the moment, and the sharing of the moment is what makes the friendship special. It's what makes the interaction special. It's what makes the moment special. It's what makes laugh things funny. Just watching. I bet if you watch the, the 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 Plainview video by yourself, you'd just be. But the fact that other people are sharing it with you and they're laughing and you're laughing, relationships are why we were made. And just like you long for a best friend who understands you, and just like your best friend longs to be understood, and just like you want somebody to hear you when you're having a bad time, or somebody to encourage you when you're when you don't know what to do, God created your heart. Now listen very carefully. God created your heart with a longing, not just to keep rules. Not just to go through motions. He created your heart with a longing to know him. To know him. And I want you to write this third point down. Third point, Jesus made the first move. And now it's your turn. Jesus made the first move and now it's your turn. And this is where we come back to Revelation 3.20. Listen, in Revelation 3, the Lord Jesus is coming to people that have drifted from him they have backslidden from him they're lukewarm they've got some religious form they appear to be a church they appear to be christian but their hearts are far from god and he's unhappy about that and does he come and say i'm gonna get a giant fly swatter and squash you no he comes and says i want you to repent I want you to come back to me. And in verse 20, we read it together. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now listen. We think of that sometimes that it's a salvation call. And that's fine. That may be one way to use that verse. But you know what it really is? He's knocking on the door of the heart of a Christian. Or the door of a church, if you will. These are saved people. This is Jesus saying, I'm outside of your life. And I'm knocking And I want to be let in. You're busy with Xbox and Facebook and friends and school and all of your stuff. But I'm your savior. I'm your creator. I'm the one that you really long for. Can I come in? And he's knocking and he's knocking and he's outside the door of your life. And I want you to look at the verse. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will what? What's the word? sup you know what the word means we'll have dinner together we'll have a meal together i'll tell you one of my favorite things to do in all of my life is to take my wife on some quiet part of a day and and sometimes it's breakfast sometimes it's lunch sometimes it's dinner sometimes it's all day she's my favorite person on the planet she's my best friend Nobody knows me like her. Nobody knows her like me. And our favorite thing to do is to quiet our life, push everything else aside, get in the car. We have a few places here in town that we go, and a few places not too far from town that we go. And they're quiet places. They're intimate places. They're places where we don't get interrupted. They're places where not a lot of people know us. They're places where we can focus on each other, and they're places where we can sit down, and without being rushed, and without being pushed, and without being interrupted, we can sit at a table together, and we can share a meal, we can look into each other's eyes, and we can talk about our lives, and how are you, and how am I, and how are our kids, and where are we going, and what are we going to do this year, and what about family vacation, and oh, and how much in love we are, and how... God's been so good to us. There's one place not far from here where we go to dinner. It's about 30 minutes from here. And it's got a fireplace and it's, all the tables have candles. We usually share the meal. It saves us money. And I'm not ashamed to tell you there have been a number of times where we've been too busy and our relationship got strained and we didn't have enough time together and Uh, The schedule was hectic and we got spread too thin and we found ourselves going a week and then two and then three weeks and not spending time together and not not talking and, and really looking in each other's eyes. It was like passing in the night, you know. Just real fast at home, how are you, have a nice day, see you later. And after two or three weeks of that, we start to get irritable and start to get frustrated and life seems to lose its joy and we start to get kind of fussy at each other and annoying at each other and I annoy her and she annoys me and pretty soon we start to fight about stupid stuff like, how dare you let us run out of Ovaltine? Don't you know that's your job, woman, to keep the house stocked with Ovaltine? so we can have chocolate milk around here. And pretty soon we're fighting about stupid stuff and, and you know what happens, I looked at her and she looks at me and you know, I go, you know what? We haven't spent any time together. It's no wonder my life is frustrating. It's no wonder your life is frustrating. It's no wonder our relationship doesn't feel right. We haven't been together. And you know what I say? Let's just leave these kids. Let's just get rid of them. Let's come back to us. And so years ago, we'd maybe get a babysitter. Now they're old enough, we just go, see you guys. (laughs) That's awesome. And we get in the car, and I might get her a flower or a card or something to tell her that she's nice and that I like her and I'm sorry I've been grumpy. And we drive up to this one restaurant, and we park, and we get out of the car, and we've put our marriage back together five or six times at that same restaurant. And I don't mean like we were going to divorce or something. I just mean we renewed our friendship. We sat there at that table and looked each other's eyes and was like, hey, yeah, I remember falling in love with you when I was 17. And she's like, yeah, and I remember falling in love with you when I was 17, along with all those other girls. (laughs) Okay, you got it, all right. I was waiting, I was waiting. You're a little slow this morning. Hey, you know, listen, I want to do a lot of stuff for my wife. I want to help her fold laundry uh, once every three years. I want to... I want to every now and then, you know, vacuum or help her with dishes, or I want to provide for her. I want to do things for her. I want to serve her. But can I tell you something? If all I do is serve my wife and vacuum and wash her car and and fold laundry and, and pick up stuff and do dishes, if that's all I ever do, I'm going to lose my heart and we're going to miss the relationship we should have. Because our relationship is not about vacuuming and dishes. Our relationship is about our love that we share. Now listen very closely. Does God, is he pleased that you serve in the nursery or that you work on a bus route or that you sing in the choir? Sure he is. Is he pleased that you dress modestly? Absolutely. That, these are Bible principles. Is he pleased that you're, that you're giving up sin and you're trying to live a holy life? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. All of it is right and good. But can I tell you what he wants most of all? He wants you to know him. He wants you to sit down with him just like I sit down with my wife. And he wants you to look into his eyes through his word. And he wants to look into your eyes through his word. And he wants your heart and his heart to do this. I'm going to tell you something, you'll stop singing in the choir and working in the nursery and dressing modestly, and you'll go out into every kind of sin there is in the next five years if your heart and God's heart aren't like this. Because can I tell you guys why I don't drink, and why I don't smoke dope, and why I don't have sex with people I'm not married to, and why I don't go out and corrals and do all this stuff? Can I tell you why? There's one main reason, because I love God. And because he loves me. And there's nothing, nothing, nothing as wonderful as that relationship. You can leave here trying, trying, trying to do the Christian life, and you will be frustrated. But if you leave here in love with God, and if you decide, you know what, I am going to know God, you know about him, but do you know him? He wants you to know him. Jeremiah 4.22, listen to this verse. For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are Saddish children. The word Saddish means silly. And you know what God literally says? You know, if you're not going to know me, if you're not going to know me, then all the rest of it's just silly. Everything else about the Christian life is silly. If you're not going to spend time with God, you have heard a million people preach. Have your devotions every day, and some of you got this system down. You open your Bible for three minutes, you close it. You know, dear Jesus, help me have a great day. Amen. You know, you have like a four minute devotional plan every day. Can I tell you something? That's not a way to build a relationship with God. It's not mechanical. It's not a to-do list. It's not a routine. You have got to carve out time, just like you carve out time for Facebook and Xbox and TV, just like you carve out time for your friend. It might be three hours on a Saturday. It might be 30 minutes every morning. It might be 15 minutes every morning and two hours on Friday night. It might be an hour every other day. I don't care what it is, but you have got to have a relationship with God that's real, from your heart because you love God. Thank you for listening to this Student Ministry 127 podcast. For more sermon resources, visit preaching.lancasterbaptist.org and for information about West Coast Baptist College, visit wcbc.edu.